Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome our guest, Mr. Bernie Milano, to the guest chair today as we talk about creating effective diversity initiatives, the PhD project story. Bernie Milano was the president of the KPMG Foundation and the founder of the PhD project. A CPA, Milano started his career with KPMG. The PhD project was founded in 1994 and has invested over $50 million into its mission with results that are outstanding. A 400% increase in the number of African-American, Hispanic-American, and Native American business school faculty with earned PhD degrees. Mr. Bernie Milano, welcome to Diversity Matters. Well, thank you, Dr. Holmes. And I would say that I'm just thrilled to be involved with this and to tell the story about the PhD project. And special treat for me to have you as the moderator since you are heavily involved and, and have started your academic career through the PhD project. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. The PhD project aims to increase workplace diversity by starting at the source of tomorrow's workforce, the college campus. In college, professors are the main role models and mentors for students. But until 1994, almost no business professors were African American, Hispanic American, or Native American. The PhD project is changing all that. It has encouraged more than 1,000 underrepresented minorities to earn a doctoral degree. That's the ticket qualifying them to become business professors. As faculty, they are encouraging and assisting countless young minority students nationwide to pursue business careers. The model is simple. Diversify the head of the classroom, and you'll diversify the pool of students who'll be tomorrow's business leaders. It's working. 90% of PhD project participants complete the challenging five-year path to a business doctorate, and 97% of those have become professors. Corporate America supports the PhD project. It was founded by KPMG Foundation and City, along with AACSB International and the Graduate Management Admission Council. Many top companies fund the project. The PhD project is changing the face of business academe. Interested in becoming a professor? Visit us online to apply to attend our annual conference. Want to learn how the project can help its funders recruit minority talent on campus? Visit our website. Great. So for those of you who don't know my academic story, I applied to 12 management PhD programs in 2006 and got rejected from all of them. So of course I was devastated by this as I never failed at anything academically before. So I was trying to figure out a plan to move forward. I randomly came across information on the internet about the PhD project, an organization I had never heard of before. So I went to the website and saw that they had an annual conference. So I applied to it. Luckily I was accepted. And in November of 2007, I was fortunate to meet Bernie there. And it would not be hyperbole for me to say that, Bernie, you hold the title for being the white guy who has had the most positive impact on my life <laughs> through your work with the PhD Project. So thankfully, at the November PhD Project conference, I learned everything I did wrong with my PhD applications, corrected it, and I got accepted to a PhD program the following year to start my PhD studies in management in 2008. So considering the important role that the PhD project has had in my life, I knew I had to have a representative for the PhD project on this inaugural season of Diversity Matters to talk about how to create effective diversity initiatives and the PhD project story. So on that note, welcome Bernie, and thanks for being here. 
So let's get started. Okay. So you have had a very successful career as an accountant at KPMG. Why do you feel the need to start the PhD project? And why were you the right person to start it? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I ran recruiting for KPMG for uh, a couple of decades as the national partner in charge of uh, university relations. And uh, from a professional standpoint and the firm standpoint and our goals and our values, as well as my own personal interests, very frustrated about not being able to find, we'll call them students of color. Uh, I don't want to offend anyone, but the focus of the PhD project was really on uh, African, Hispanic, and Native American. So very frustrated about not being able to find students of color, no matter where we went, unless we went to uh, an HBCU. So really, it was a matter of firm goals, firm's values, uh, my values, my goals. Uh, What could we do to try to change all that? And as we spent about a year trying to figure out what to do, when we looked at HBCUs, of course, we saw a tremendous uh, success in their business schools. We saw students that were available to be hired, but it wasn't happening in what you would call the traditional white institutions. So we just decided we were going to try something that was uh, terribly bold, never been tried before, and that was, what if we had diverse faculty? Would they, in effect, be able to attract students of color? And consequently, we in the corporate world would have a greater pool from which to recruit. So it was all a, a matter of a tremendous business need. But in addition to that, the fact that uh, I personally, based on my life experience, thought this was really important. So we, we relaunched it. Great. So 25 years later, and we see a very successful organization. So many people listening might get the wrong impression about just how big a lift this was. So can you share with us some of the biggest challenges you faced in founding this organization and some specific strategies and alliances you have employed in order to overcome those challenges? Sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> when we started, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Uh, we knew what we wanted to accomplish. We tried to harness some of the talent around the table, reached out to some organizations like advertising firms and others. And... You know, what we were told was the most effective thing to do in order to get our message out was to use direct mail. Now, this is before the days of email. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's that's exciting. But how do you know who to send your direct mail to? And where in the world do you get enough money to be able to blanket the population? And the beauty was that we were able to identify organizations that would work with us, would partner with us, uh, organizations like National Association of Black Accountants, National Black MBA Association, Association of Hispanic MBAs, about 10 or 12 organizations that said, look, we, we believe in what you're doing. We absolutely believe that it's critically important uh, and we'll be willing to give you access to our member database in order for you to send your information directly to the very population you are trying to, to attract. So without that, and we call them the supply organization or the supply alliance, we now have over 50 of them, but in the beginning, there were about a dozen. Right. You know, without their cooperation, when you think about the model, these organizations were funded by corporate America. I was on the board of several of them. And when you think our model is trying to attract people out of the corporate world, think about getting their PhDs and become professors, what we're actually doing then is encouraging you know, executives of color uh, employees of color to leave 
Right. So basically, organizations that care about diversity and yet our model is to encourage their employees to quit right. <laughs> and get their PhD. So I was thrilled. I was thrilled that they were really willing to get along with us and uh, make their information available to us. And that was really, if, if we didn't have that, there was no way we could get started. So this is Diversity Matters, where we are not afraid to ask the hard questions. So I know our listeners will want me to ask you straight up, what portion of your success in founding the PhD project would you attribute to your being a cis heterosexual white man? <laughs> well, I've never really thought of it that way. You know, we are all people. We are all products of our life experiences. And you know, even though I would be categorized as a white male, mm-hmm. heterosexual, my life experiences starting all the way back when I was working in my dad's dry cleaning store where we had uh, employees employees of color. And we only had, I think, four employees, including me, and three of them were African-American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole I could spend an entire day telling you my life experience up through uh, what happened in high school, where a young a black fellow was a shortstop a year behind me. I was a shortstop. He was so much better than me. <laughs> I was all love and no stick. And he was everything. And yet uh, I started and he played JV. And back and it, uh-huh. you know, singing in the choir and I, I thought we went to a diverse high school mm-hmm. but as I look back on that high school I realized that all of the African-American students and, and their families were living in one little section of our town which was called Matchtown which was a horrible horrible reference to it mm-hmm. so I, it, it just accumulated and accumulated and accumulated so I you know I, I have a passion for what we were doing I have a real concern having gone to Temple University, a, a highly diverse institution, but again, having experienced time after time after time that the uh, white folks had privilege and the folks of, of color they weren't getting hired, they weren't getting opportunities, and uh, they were separate fraternities and sororities, etc. So it's really who you are as a person and your life experiences more than the way you would be. Um, categorized mm-hmm. in terms of your features. Mm-hmm. So just to follow up on that, I hear that you have not thought about it that often, but would you agree that your features helped make this a success? Or do you think that it had no help at all? Or you attribute no part of your features in terms of the success of the PhD project? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I can tell you, because when we started again, uh, we were talking about doing things through what uh, you might call snail mail and telephone calls. Right. And I can't tell you how many people, when they would meet me, they'd say, oh, my God, we thought you were black. Okay. And so uh, so I, I really don't know. So was that that meeting, oh, my God, we thought you were black, was well, our relief <laughs> seeing you or not? <laughs> no, it always brought a smile to my face. Because what it, what it meant was I had... I was genuine. Apparently, I had authenticity. Right. Apparently, I, I understood. Right. And yeah, of course, I was serving on so many boards at the time. And many of the people on the boards right. were executives in the corporate diversity space or primarily corporate philanthropy space because corporate diversity wasn't really a big deal at that time in terms of right. it having uh, people in charge. So to your point, many of my counterparts were uh, white males. Mm-hmm. I had credibility in that network, which enabled right. people answered my phone calls, people responded to my messages, people were willing to sit down and listen to the story. Right. So I know the 
Management Doctoral Student Association, NDSA, newsletter recently came out, and it basically had some interviews of some trailblazers in the field. And one of those interviews featured Stella and Como, oh, yeah. who we know both love and adore as a giant in our field. Absolutely. And she spoke about your presentation at the Academy of Management and your pitch to them. And then, of course, they turned to her, you know, being the only African-American on the Board of Governors at the time. Right. She's probably one of the first, if not the first African-American on the Board of Governors for the Academy of Management. And, you know, they asked her, what should we do? And, and she stated that, you know, AOM as an organization needs to get behind this. And they wrote a million dollar check to the PhD project. So clearly you must have given a great presentation or pitch to the board, but it also speaks to the power of having people of like mind in a room to also lend credibility to that. So have you had other challenges or successes with the other organizations besides Academy of Management that we partner with? Have, have you found one organization more helpful than the others? Well, uh, I mean, the short answer is yes, but I also have to clarify the record. I wish they had given us a million dollar check. They gave us a $25,000 check. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Well, that's a clarification there. <laughs> you know, maybe she's using the present value of money. I'm not really sure, but it was 20, okay. It was 25. But to your point, I mean, if she were not at the table, I'm not sure what the result would have been. I'm not sure what the answer would have been. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I, I saw that time after time. I was on the board of uh, AACSB when we were thinking about starting this. And if it was not for the fact that we had Dean Mel Stiff from Florida State and mm -hmm. Dean Placeber Craig from North Carolina A&T, I just the conversation is so different right. when you have diversity around the table, there's no question. AOM has been great. The Academy or American Marketing Association, they have been absolutely terrific. Right. American Accounting Association, uh, AICPA, they're very concerned about the absence of diversity in the CPA profession. Right. You know, AACSB is very concerned about the absence of diversity in, on the faculty because they have students coming in look around the university and say, wait a minute, why aren't I represented here? Right. So these organizations have been wonderful. They've been with us for many, many, many years because what we're doing really dovetails very well with their values and with their goals. And in many cases with programs that they have been involved with or have initiated on their own. And ours is a really wonderful, it's more than a supplement. It's, it's a major cog and what they're what they've been trying to do because if universities don't attract students of color if students of color don't study business mm -hmm. if they don't perform up to their potential which of course gets enhanced if they see themselves as part of the institution then the corporations are not going to have anyone to hire so all the way up the food chain having faculty of color is absolutely critical to everybody's goals and objectives so it's very easy for people in your shoes to adopt a white savior complex. And after knowing you personally for over a decade now, I can say one of the many things that I respect about you is that you never adopted that position. So why do you think that's the case with you? And part of that, I imagine, is because of your life story. But what advice can you give others who want to be good allies? You really, I, mean, I think it's true of almost anything you try to do with your life or with your career. You, you have to have, you have to be authentic. You have to have a genuine interest and passion for what it is you're trying to do. Because if you're not genuine, if you're not authentic, if passion doesn't drip through on every conversation, every interaction you have, you're just not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. 
So I think you nailed it again. That when I, I, I was asked to be the speaker at a presidential inauguration a number of years ago, and it was really wonderful. I flew out to California to do it. She told me I was the third choice, but that's okay. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't mind that at all. And she said, you know, Bernie, you know, tell me, tell me how you got to where you are in, in this incredible interest and passion and energy you have around uh, diversity and you know, new words have come up like inclusion and belonging, but it's all the same thing. And that is equal opportunity and inclusiveness and everybody uh, ought to have be, be able to have the same life projection regardless of anything having to do with their ethnicity or their race or their, their size or whatever, whatever feature they might be. So that's when I, I was asked to go back and try to build this thing. How did I get to where I am and, and my feelings and my, my values and, and my passion? This is the first time in my life I put it all together. And really, that's one of the first times I even, shame on me, mm. realized the experience I had in high school. Uh, you know, very, very short story. There was a, a saying in a group with a black fellow, George Ingram. Unfortunately, he's passed away recently. He was a wonderful guy, center fielder of our baseball team, quarterback of our football team. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I had George in the car and I picked up this woman named Judy. I won't give her last name. And the next day she came into school crying and she said, I can no longer ride in your car. And I said, why not? She said, because uh, George was in the car when you picked me up. Mm-hmm. What I found out was her father was born and raised in the South. And even though we were living in New Jersey, very close to where you are in Rutgers family, his uh, impressions of people and his prejudices ran very, very deep. And that just was startling to me at the time and startling to her. And George kind of shrugged it off as something perhaps he experienced right. before. So there's a whole series of those, that I say, whether it was high school, Temple University, even, even in the profession. The first African-American we hired, I was in charge of recruiting in the Philadelphia office. The first African-American we hired Alonzo Abner from Wilberforce University, I'll never forget it, 1968. And boy, I'll tell you, and I was in charge of of staffing people on jobs, finding out from the partner how many staff they needed, when they started, what levels they needed. And I was, my job was to go through our entire staff and make those assignments. And it was a real struggle trying to get someone to accept Alonzo on engagements. And all I ever heard was the client will not accept them. So, the same year was the first woman we hired, and Maureen Megan never forget her either from Penn State. So we've come, we've, I guess we've come a long way. But I, but getting all those things together is you know where where I am and why I am who I am. Wow, you have a successful career at KPMG, and um, you know there are a lot of other economically successful companies out there like KPMG. However, many of them have not stepped up to either start or support these great initiatives like the PhD project. So what specific advice can you give executives who are at these large companies like a KPMG who want to start effective DEI initiatives and what steps should they take? Well, you know, uh, if some executives were around the table thinking about their product line, thinking about their competitors, thinking about the economy, thinking about the, uh, their R&D, they would be have really serious conversations People who were uh, significant players in the organization would be assigned to a to a task force to figure out, well, you know, how, what can we do? How, what are our competitors doing? What does the what does the market look like? You know, what is our what are our supply chain challenges? 
In other words, all the things that are business drivers and things that they take seriously about whether their business is going to be successful or not. If they haven't wrapped their heads around that for diversity and inclusion and belonging, then they're not going to take it as seriously as, as they need to. Mm -hmm. My experience has been that companies spend a lot of money on diversity training, mm -hmm. diversity awareness. I mean, one of the reasons is that the production of the people they're hiring, whether it was uh, the segregated K-12 system that we have or the uh, absence of diversity in universities in terms of presidents and provosts and deans and faculty, so that when they come to the corporate world, it's the first time they've really experienced working with, working for people who are different from them. So therefore, the training is, is critical. So if you drove all of that back into the educational system, then companies would be uh, much better prepared to deal with the fact with the students that they're hiring and with the employees they end up with because they already have, will have been made acutely aware of how important people are and that their differences are not really differences. So my experience also has been that companies are willing to spend a lot of money back in the organizations as long as the investment they're making will give them product uh, next Tuesday. In other words, they'll back organizations where they can hire an intern tomorrow or a permanent hire next Tuesday. But ours is an investment. What you're trying to do is you're trying to build an infrastructure and, and do something that's systemic that will enhance the ability of universities to attract students of color. And, and more importantly, those students will then perform up to their potential because they will, the comfort level, I've never been black, Oscar, mm -hmm. as you know, <laughs> So I, I can't report to this firsthand, but I've heard it over and over and over again. Uh, I've never been Latino. I, the idea of going into a classroom that's predominantly white and the faculty being white and you go from class to class to class have the same experience. That, that comfort level has got to impact your ability to pay attention, your willingness to ask questions, your willingness to jump in there and give that answer and get involved in the discussion. And it's not just me saying that, it's not anecdotal. There's tons of research, research done by, research we look at all the time is done by Dr. Claude Steele, right. who wrote a book called Whistling Vivaldi, which right. is unbelievable in proving that, that premise that your identity impacts your performance, especially when your identity is not the same as those around you. Right. Yeah, very powerful and influential stereotype threat literature. And as a black man, I can attest yep. to, to your anecdotes and research. So Diversity Matters listener, Dr. Jason Rivera asked, diversity is often times espoused as an organizational or institutional value. How might you help organizations move from representational, superficial conversations about diversity in order to have more thoughtful and transformational conversations? And I will personally add actions around diversity. Well, again, you know, it, it gets back to uh, why do they care about diversity? Why, why are they having a meeting? Why do they have an organization? Why do they have somebody in charge? What is their objective in doing that? Is it, is it social pressure? Is it pressure coming from their employee resource groups? Is it a Me Too type of, not Me Too in the current vernacular, but other companies do this? I guess we have to have someone like that. Right. If they, they don't generally believe that this is a critical element in the success of their enterprise. It's never going to get there. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be an afterthought. So I will say that one of the things I admire, and there's many things I admire about the PhD project, but 
I really admire the focus on underrepresented minorities, African Americans, Native Americans, and Hispanic Americans. And that has been the focus of the mission for the 25 years, because I do think many times when we have conversations about diversity, those underrepresented groups get dropped out in the name of having a broader diversity conversation. So I really applaud the PhD project for holding fast to this mission and recognizing that representation matters. It's not just a diversity conversation, but it's, it's about underrepresentation of different groups and historical oppression, really, of many groups in this country that need to be redressed. So I applaud the PhD project for that. Well, Oscar, you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you, I've not been popular in a lot of meetings because I've said that the broader you define diversity, the more apt you are to declare victory. And you're not really focusing on the central issue at hand. And I, I applaud on all kinds of efforts, but it's a little bit like <laughs> I served on President Bush 43, George W. Bush, his board for Black Colleges and Universities. I'm now on the president's board again. Mm -hmm although it took two and a half years to get appointed. And what happened in the government was there were tremendous initiatives around HBCUs. And then they started to get involved with Hispanic-serving institutions, and then right. there's always been a major effort around tribal colleges. But no one ever quite understood the difference between an HBCU and the historical significance and the historical necessity as compared to other institutions, right. which they then started calling minority-serving institutions. So the language in government has changed significantly to where HBCUs have become a subset of minority-serving institutions. So the focus goes away, and when the focus goes away, the amount of time and effort and financial and human resources you have gets spread much more thinly over a much broader right. set of initiatives and a set of mm -hmm. intentions. And consequently, I call it spray and pray. I mean, you, you just don't have enough. You have to focus. You, all the organizations I was on the boards of at the time, whether it was INROS, Consortium for Graduate Study and Management, and others, the focus was on right. African, Hispanic, and Native Americans. So we've, we've stayed the course. And I imagine from a lot of pressure from other organizations to change, right? Absolutely. Plus, uh, some of the sponsors would say, well, you should add engineering. Well, yeah, that's interesting. But right. again, yeah, we're going to focus on business. Uh, not that it's the only thing that we should be focused on. Right. But we just don't have, we don't have the bandwidth. I hate that term. We don't have the financial and the human resources to be able to attack the entire academic world. I, I've tried so hard, so hard to get other organizations, mm -hmm. for instance, in, in computer science. I went to one of the major high-tech companies and said, you know, I, I, my son's in a PhD program in computer science at Cornell. And I, I know what the demographics are. Do you want to start something comparable to the PhD project? Well, you know, uh, well, why don't you do it? You know, we'll, we'll give you some money and PhD project expand to do that. Right. Well, we're not going to do it. You've got, you got to be focused. And so that's a perfect opportunity Again, for those other companies out there looking to start a great initiative, I mean, you have a great, you know, playbook with the PhD project. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you all have been really accessible in terms of the information you put on the website. So it's no surprise of how to do this. So it's, it's out there for all other companies to pick up the baton and, and move it forward. We've offered our entire model. We've offered all of our materials. In fact, the AICPA was very concerned about the, the shortage of uh, auditing and tax professors, not necessarily of color, mm -hmm. but in general. 
And uh, they wanted to start a program to try to uh, figure out how they could encourage people to leave their jobs, uh, get a PhD in auditing or PhD in tax so that that mm -hmm. hole could be filled. Right. They took all of our materials. They, they used the same website developer. They used the same advertising firm, the same PR firm. They took all of our conference materials. They, they absolutely replicated what we were doing with all of our, we didn't charge them a dime. We spent time with them. And in fact, in their first annual report, they gave a huge amount of credit mm -hmm. to the PhD project because they were able to start really on the, on the opponent's two-yard line rather than you know, on the kickoff of a new program. And we've offered it. There's, there's a PhD project in South Africa, which we helped start. So right. yeah, we're, we're willing to give it to anybody who wants to form a funding base and to form a base of organizations that really, really care to attack the other academic disciplines. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, Bernie has retired from his role at the PhD Project, and the new president of the KPMG Foundation and the PhD Project is Blaine Ruschek. So we welcome him with open arms to the project. So this question is probably more for him, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because the listener wanted to know, with an alumni community that is so much larger than the current doctoral students in the PhD Project, how is the emphasis evolving to serve this increasingly larger segment of the PhD Project family? Yeah, sure. And you should know that I've known Blaine for over 30 years. He actually worked for me. Mm -hmm. uh, when I ran recruiting for the firm, he was in charge of recruiting in our Honolulu office. Uh, and over the years, we've worked very, very closely together because the foundation was supporting our the higher ed initiatives, which he was uh, involved with. Right. Well, you know, I think, Oscar, you know this, that we've now formed alumni organizations so that when our doctoral students come together at their conferences, uh, of which we have five, by academic discipline. When they come together at their conference, usually in the summer, the, the leading day of that conference is devoted to the alumni coming back, mm -hmm. uh, trying to work with them so that they they continue to know they're supported. They talk about uh, how to get tenure. They talk about the research they're doing. They talk about how they can perhaps move up into the administrative ranks in higher ed, something that we are keenly focused on. When we think about our alumni, we, run a, we have a program that we're running with KPMG called Board Fit. Mm -hmm. Corporate boards are very, very thin when it comes to diversity. And when you think about one of the issues that they constantly address is the criticism they get for having uh, boards that are not diverse. So working with our more senior folks who are now deans and provosts and a couple, as you know, are now presidents of colleges and universities, right. helping them to prepare for being candidates for positions on public company boards or boards of large uh, large nonprofits. I work a lot with uh, search firms who contact us all the time, even though I'm retired. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they, they still have my, uh, my Gmail address. So working with search firms who are interested in having people of color to move up into administrative positions. And as you know, we're working with AACSB. They've been wonderful in the program right. called Aspiring Leaders because they've been running programs for years on how to prepare their members to become right. deans. Well, through the work of Andy Policano, the retired uh, dean from Cal Irvine, he took all of their programs that were aimed at different levels and put together this Aspiring Leader so that our people who are now tenured associates and above if they want to become department heads, uh, assistant deans, associate deans, deans, provosts, presidents, 
they're invited to a program that we run every summer, usually around 45 people go through it. And I think there's been five or six that have been run to date. I think this year's will probably be virtual. Right. But it's been, it's been wonderful because, you know, just like when we talk about people coming to the PhD project conference who have never seen a faculty member of color, it hasn't been on their radar that this is something they might want to do with their, with their life. And we try to inspire and encourage them to, to think more broadly about what they can do and not be inhibited by what they have seen. Well, the same thing happens, and you've seen it, Oscar. You become you can become a faculty member, right? And you see no deans in, in the, of color. I mean, it's right. even the eighty-two HBCUs that have uh, business schools. I think fewer than thirty of them have a black dean in the business school. Right. So uh, again, we're back to uh, encouraging and inspiring people to think about take their corporate experience, take their PhD, take the uh, experience they've now had as a tenured member of the faculty and think about how much more impact you can have on the enterprise the higher up you go the wider your beam shines on the entire organization so we've been somewhat successful one of the highlights last year was my wife and i going to uh, two presidential inaugurations with people from the phd project and right now we have uh, lynn perry wooten Mm -hmm. who's uh, leaving her dean position at Cornell to become the president at Simmons College up in uh, Massachusetts. So it's wonderful to see the maturation of the program. Absolutely. So do you have any regrets concerning the PhD project or, you know, were there any mishaps that you've made along the way that you wish you could take back or do over? Well, you know, I've, I wish we had started 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. It was something. That, well, then you wouldn't have been a founder then. <laughs> yeah, whatever. I've been around a long time. <laughs> okay. I started running recruiting for the firm in 1975, and it was gotcha. what almost 20, 20 years later yeah. when we started the PhD project. So, yeah, starting it earlier, I, I wish we could have had some major private foundations or major major government support mm -hmm. to have a really stronger funding base because. I and my and our team really spend a lot of time just trying to every year keep the current sponsors mm -hmm. involved and engaged uh, and seeing value ROI from their investment and trying to get others on board. So it's really tough when it, it's a separate nonprofit, it's a separate legal entity. Right. And waking up every morning and saying, well, "Not if I don't raise the money, what are we going to do about our summer conferences?" Are we, do about our November conference, how we're going to run this program with Baruch or with Bentley or AACSB. So it was really about, if I had different types of connections. And when we went to private foundations, they said, look, if the corporate world believes in what you're doing and believes it's important, then the corporate world are the ones that should be supporting this. Mm -hmm. And I, I get it. I absolutely get it. So uh, I don't really have any regrets. You know, we started this at a time when Universities were actually cutting back on the number of people they were admitting to doctoral programs. So we had a big headwind. We constantly are fighting the, the articles that come out in various publications saying that there are too many PhDs. And mm -hmm. PhDs can't find jobs. And PhDs take a ballot poverty. And I've tried to respond to them, but it kind of goes out into the wind because it's not true in business. It's not true in engineering. It's not true in computer science. PhDs they're talking about are principally in the areas of humanities. Mm -hmm. But when people read that, they have they assume that a PhD is a PhD, and consequently, 
uh, they're going to run into the same headwinds. And so trying to fight what the myths are out there about PhDs and, and careers in higher education has really been one of our biggest struggles. Right. I frequently share with everyone I meet when I talk about the PhD project that I would not be Dr. Holmes without the PhD project. So it has been, again, one of the organizations that had the most positive impact on my life. And many people write about the PhD project and will continue to write about the PhD project long after we're both gone, hopefully. <laughs> so it's an amazing legacy to have for you. What would you say or how would you describe the PhD project in your own words and how significant it was and the impact that it had on your life? Oh, you know, Oscar, I, uh, it, it has been my life, as you know. It's not the project, it's the people. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, meeting someone like you and hearing them, you could have given up. You right. applied to all those programs and got turned down. You could have given up. Miles Davis, who's now the president of Linfield College, right. he got rejected, uh, I think, three times before he finally convinced the faculty that they made a huge mistake and he got admitted. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, it's just been life-giving. My family has fallen in love with it. We've met so many wonderful people, wonderful families. We've seen the birth of children. We've seen children of, of our earliest folks. Uh, now come, they come to the project and their children are becoming mm-hmm. PhD students and, and faculty. You know, I retired as a partner. I was aged out mm-hmm. in uh, the year 2000. And the idea was I'd stay a couple more years because at the time I was the president of a couple of organizations and I was on the board of several organizations. And when those terms would end, uh, it was pretty much a given that I would, as, when I retired as a partner, I stayed on as an employee. Mm-hmm. But if it had not been for the PhD project, I'm sure I would have been long gone. Mm-hmm. Not that I didn't love the firm and love what I was doing. It's just that this became such a huge, huge part of who I am and and what I've become, as I say, it's, it's, in, it's, not, it's not by accident that my wife came to one of our November conferences. I think it was 2003. On the way home, flying home, she said, uh, I'm not sure about anybody else in the room, but you convinced me I'm going to get my PhD. Right. And, she, and she did at Columbia. And my son, as I say, is in one now at getting his degree uh, this month. Right. right. No, no ceremony. And my other son, who's a first lieutenant in the Army, uh, has been accepted into a doctoral program at the University of Southern California in social work. Excellent. Congratulations. So, uh, yeah, it's had a, had a huge, I'm the guy low end of the totem pole this time, I'll tell you that. Well, I know you are enjoying your retirement, but I know you as a person, you can't stay still. You're always busy. So what are some future projects you have in the works or some future plans, even though travel is a bit down now? <laughs> so what are some things we should be on the lookout for coming from you? Well, Oscar, I just turned 80 on Saturday, so I'm not so sure uh, how much runway there is left <laughs> and how my Happy birthday, Bernie. Thank you. And I'm sure you still have a lot of runway left. <laughs> and how my jets are going to be firing, but you know, I've, I've, been, I've been fortunate. I was on the search committee for the Dean of Business at William Patterson University. Mm-hmm. We just closed it down this last uh, Wednesday, and I'm thrilled to say the Dean that they've hired is a black from the West Indies. Uh, he's mm-hmm. been a Dean in the, in the U.S., but uh, thrilled with their, with their choice. I uh, was chairing the search. I'm involved with the Episcopal Church, and our priest is retiring, and the Episcopal Church to do a full search for 
priests, and I was chairing that, and we just closed that one down on Thursday night by calling the, the young priest to, to join us in September. So I love seeing people get wonderful opportunities, and I love seeing organizations getting the right person put in the right position. That's really terrific. So I've had a couple search firms who have uh, suggested that since I have a passion on both sides of that equation, that maybe I would want to join them in some sort of a limited capacity. But I, I've always coached all the retiring partners in KPMG to give it six months, give it nine months, don't jump into something because uh, right. something better might come along or something, let's say, more appropriate. Right. Am I following my own advice? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to resist, but it, it's important when you get up in the morning to know you have a reason to get up and you have a purpose for that day. Right. That's the whole I've got to say. Well, thank you, Bernie, so much for the work that you've done with the PhD project and the great treasure that you've left us and for sharing with us some great advice on how leaders can create more effective diversity initiatives. So I wish you continued enjoyment in your retirement. Uh, Oscar, thank you very much. And thank you for all you're doing for the PhD project and for the, for the folks who are coming through the PhD project, your involvement with the November conference, your involvement with the, the Management Doctoral Student Association and all that your career is going to have in front of you. You're going to, you are a leader. You're going to be a leader in bigger and bigger ways as time goes on. So thank you for this opportunity to share the story. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family. And leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you. So we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, The PhD Project. Please support their mission by donating to The PhD Project. And if you're interested in a PhD in business, you can find more information on their website by visiting www.phdproject.org. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Mary. Until next time, peace and love. Thank you.